The masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested every last post just That's true, Dr. Zayas. Very well. Where would we be without THC? Cause we know they're lying to us, just don't know to what degree. Yeah, where would we be without THC? The highest side chat show, Greg Carwood Company. Alright, higher side chatters, most of us have reached the point in life where we realize how truly nefarious our carefully crafted society really is, as we're dropped aimlessly and ignorant from the abyss into an abusive, fear-fueled system of economic enslavement, forced to endure a decade-plus of obedience training just to get us started, on top of endless, finely-tuned think tank propaganda, only to be shuffled into a 9-to-5 cycle of exploitation, broken promises, and unrealized dreams, where a non-negotiable portion of our already low wages is taken by force for the Puppet Master's personal piggy bank and world domination fund. Well, it's pretty much a no-brainer that there's a better way to do things, but in the opinion of today's guest, the best system might be no system at all. His name is Adam Kokesh, and he's a passionate activist and a powerful voice in the libertarian movement. You might have seen his popular show, Adam vs. the Man, or read his freely distributed book, Freedom. And having completed his lengthy For the Love of Freedom tour not long ago, it's a real treat to have him here. Adam, my man, welcome to the higher side. Oh, well, thanks, Greg, but you don't have to say all those irresponsibly nice things about me <laughs> just to have a good conversation. I appreciate the uh, uh, undeservedly epic introduction. I, I hope I can do something in the way of, of living up to that today, and it, it really is a, a, a great honor to have this kind of opportunity for, uh, for the kind of conversation that you host with this show to talk about what I care about, which is freedom. For sure, man. I appreciate that. And thanks for coming on. No doubt you're an active and passionate guy. Got to respect that. And just for people who might not be familiar with your background and level of commitment to causes that are important to you, walk us through some of your experiences since this path of activism seemed to have started with your involvement joining the Iraq Veterans Against the War group up through having enough time in jail to write your book to where we are now. It's been quite a journey, man. Uh, a full-time activist for nine and a half years plus now coming up on my 10-year anniversary of full-time activism next February. And it started, well, I mean, I could go back to becoming a libertarian in high school when they said, do you want to be a Republican or Democrat? And I was like, wait, 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 no, 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 no. I don't have to be lame. This is America. I got to have a choice. And uh, you know, they told me there's these libertarians, you know, these these crazy people who like to be left alone. And I was a punk kid. So, yeah, leave me alone. Sign me up for that. And I became a libertarian in name only, having gotten the political version of the message of socially liberal, fiscally conservative. But I uh, had gotten this political version of the message. I, I couldn't really get the I should say it just took me a long time to get to the philosophical version of the message. And I feel like that was kind of a, a point of rebirth for me even. So that really, that's the story. Well, it has to start with that point, but that getting the political message didn't stop me from enlisting in the Marine Corps, volunteering to go to Iraq, having that whole experience. And the reason the philosophical message is so much more important is that it's about ethics. It's about raising the standard of ethics in society. 
freedom is what you have when no one is forcing their will on you in any way. So what does it mean to force your will on someone else? Well, when we say don't hit, don't steal, don't kill, it's not unless you're a cop or an IRS agent or a soldier. <laughs> and I did some terribly unethical things in the Marine Corps in, in Iraq, if you want to get into that, that haunt me to this day. Mm-hmm. And it was a 10-year process for me uh, getting out of the Marine Corps. You know, actually, it, I was a reservist going to college. And I volunteered to go to Iraq and I brought a pistol back as a souvenir. I bought it from an Iraqi cop and I got in trouble with that on campus uh, at my college when I was uh, in between activations, basically. And I was getting ready to go back to Iraq in 2006 after graduating from college. And this became a, a problem where my unit found out about it. And I spent a year instead of going to Iraq, managing a barracks at Camp Pendleton, mowing lawns as a sergeant who spoke Arabic with civil affairs experience. Hmm. And so I was just disgruntled enough when I got out to really start questioning things. I mean, people look at me like I'm smart and it's ridiculous. I mean, I I was not just dumb enough to enlist in the Marine Corps, uh, you know, and and I want to say just barely smart enough to figure out that it was a racket But even then, I needed a lot of help to figure it out. I needed a lot of circumstance to put, like, I had to be disgruntled with the Marine Corps. You know, I got busted down from sergeant to corporal the day after they gave me a medal for my time in Iraq. So it was just like this really strange experience for me getting out of the Marine Corps that led me to first question the war, but it was, I moved to DC to get a a master's degree in political management at George Washington University. And that's where I found Iraq veterans against the war and getting involved with that was huge for me, especially in the therapy of getting over my combat experience and being able to be surrounded by other veterans and and take the the evils and and the, the trauma of my combat experience and put it to good use was uh, you know immensely satisfying and, and, and really uh, the, the foundation of my activism. I fell into that full-time, ended up touring all over the country with IVAW, doing a lot of civil disobedience, getting arrested. And then uh, I, I went through a, a major shift that was a, a sort of break from anti-war activism when I moved back to New Mexico to run for Congress in 2010 as a Republican uh, as part of the Ron Paul strategy. And I, I had his endorsement in that. Then I couldn't shut up when the race was over. So I, well, excuse me, during that time was when I read Ethics of Liberty by Murray Rothbard. And that was, uh, you know, there's a certain bottom of the rabbit hole that you get to. And I like to say that the only time you're wrong is when you think you're at the bottom of the rabbit hole because there is no bottom. (laughs) It just keeps going. And I've certainly found that out with my, you know, recent challenges. But there is a kind of bottom of the rabbit hole on violence and politics which is philosophical libertarianism, when you just understand that ethics is universal for a reason. You know, we, we don't need to make this exception for government, that when you do unethical things, you, you get bad, bad results. And it doesn't matter if you excuse it with voting or government or the needs of the many or anything like that. If you violate ethical principles, it is not conducive to human happiness. And I, I think that's what we're realizing now is it's so much of humanity's misery comes from the institutionalized violence and coercion of government. So that's what I've dedicated my life to working on one way or another. And so uh, when the race was over, I 
couldn't shut up. I got a radio show. That was the start of Adam versus the man, then the TV show, then the independent versions on the internet. And uh, I killed Adam versus the man when I released freedom, which I started writing. I can't say I wrote it when I was in jail. A lot of people like to exaggerate that on my mm -hmm. behalf, <laughs> but I started writing it when I was in jail. I had the idea for it when I was in jail for four months in DC and uh, I had a lot of help. You know, you know, I think I was voted in high school least likely to ever finish reading a book. So when people go, oh, you wrote a book, you know, hey, I, well, it's okay. I had a lot of help. And <laughs> it was more that I saw the opportunity to create the ultimate red pill. And it was when I had all these great books in my cell in jail that people had sent me, these great attempts to share the message of freedom in, in a way that it changes someone's worldview, changes someone's perspective. And I thought, you know, like we need, uh, you know, the, the ultimate combination of all the strengths of all of these books with none of their weaknesses. And, and that's what I set out to do with freedom. And, and because I got a lot of help, uh, I think at least we succeeded in creating what today at present time, and I'm sure a better one will come along shortly, uh, the sooner the better, but uh, at what at present time is the fastest way to take someone from zero to I get it in terms of the nature of government and the nature of freedom and how we move past this whole paradigm of, of statism, of, of central violent control. So I, I hope that wasn't too long of an answer. No, uh, not at been all. two hours yet? <laughs> well, also I was hoping maybe you could go into how it was your commitment to activism that landed you in jail for four months. I mean, what was the the catalyst that got you on the radar of the system that they felt they needed to make an example of you? Oh man, well that's that's uh that's kind of several long stories, but basically it's for loading a shotgun for a YouTube video in the ironically named Freedom Plaza, two blocks from the White House. And it started, I suppose, February 2013 when the gun control issue was becoming a big deal. And as someone who's always been a, a major proponent of gun rights, and, uh, and, and, and I have to say for the long run, you know, for people who, who are wondering you know, like, you know, how this works in a, in a stateless society with no restrictions on firearms possession. Well, you know, on your own property, you do whatever you like. You want your property to be a gun-free zone. You have the right to do that. You want your community to be a gun-free zone. If everybody voluntarily wants that, you know, then, hey, they, they have, you have that right. And in the long run. Well, what, what, if, what if like five people don't? Well, then on their own property, they're, they're allowed to do whatever they like. You know, you can have a collective as long as there's no violence involved. If if me and and my ten neighbors in my tiny little corner of Juniperwood Ranch here say, you know, we we sign a, a pact and you know we want our area to be gun free and we agree to not allow guns on our property, then that's our business. I wouldn't do that. I would just to be clear, I would not do that. But I will say, as much as I am pro gun in the present and really indefinitely into the future, in the sense that I would never want anybody's right to defend themselves how they see fit infringed. I would never want anybody's right of self-ownership, the right to do what they want with their own property infringed by force in any way whatsoever. What guns represent is a, is a tool of preserving value when used in just in, in a just situation where you use, uh, use them for defense. But obviously, in a perfectly free society, there's no need to use them for defense because aggression is, is so disincentivized and, and uh, in so many ways that it, it doesn't really exist. But more importantly, 
with technology, I think we're going to render guns obsolete very soon here. I mean, as soon as you have Star Trek phasers hmm. that you can set to stun, where if you shoot someone in the pinky toe, it paralyzes them and yet preserves the value of their life. Then, you know, in, in that situation, I, you know, when we get to that point, if like if someone invented that today and, you know, was able to make it as cheap as a firearm and within five, ten years, it was readily available uh, if someone came to my gate with a gun on his hip, I'd be like, hey, you're not welcome on my property with that. Like, we'll play with guns. We'll have fun with guns. We'll go hunting with guns. But if you're going to carry a gun for self-defense, that's not really responsible when you have something that's more capable of disabling someone and, and less destructive that preserves the value of that person's life. I mean, what if the person was poisoned? Mm-hmm. And in a sense, we already have this with uh, tasers and pepper spray, and, and personally, you know, I, I obviously these don't completely add up to the stopping power of a firearm today. And I think for that reason, you know, t- with today's technology, carrying a firearm is a smart thing to do. And, uh, you know, I, I've opened, before I became a felon, uh, I would open carry whenever I could. I would concealed carry whenever I was uh, legally comfortable with that. And uh, at some point today, you know, like if, if you have someone coming after you, and a taser and a pepper spray, you know, might not stop them. Yeah, shoot them. Absolutely. hundred percent. I totally back up your right to defend yourself that way. And that's, that's what I would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do think it's somewhat irresponsible, even with today's technology to carry a firearm and not at least also carry pepper spray or a taser so that before you escalate to deadly force, and, and sometimes you might need to immediately that you have the option to use less than lethal force but anyway that rant aside (laughs) should we we get back to the story well i mean i knew we were going to kind of disagree a little bit on the gun issue and i i fall into a weird category that i personally really don't like guns or want to be around them but i also would never want to shackle a person's ability to defend themselves or want to limit a person's ability to have a gun legally it's just a slippery slope because You know, you had this demonstration that I understand was uh, like an open carry on Washington. And I know it's a peaceful demonstration to highlight your rights to be able to do that. But I'm not comfortable with people I don't know being within eyeshot of me being able to kill me with the pull of their index finger. I mean, you don't have to be on my property to be antagonizing me by loading a gun on the right outside the border of my property. And I consider that to be antagonizing and threatening you know, it's a it's a slippery slope and it's a hard place for me to find an actual position. Well, let me give you a little perspective that, that I've had to embrace that might make it a little easier because because your, your concern is legitimate. Absolutely. That you come to draw certain lines and, and, and have some uh, lack of clarity on that is also understandable because there is a sort of subjectiveness to a, a lot of these issues that is not often taken into account. I certainly respect where you're coming from in saying, you know, like basically if, if I want, you know, that, that you don't want to regulate safety on other people's property on their behalf, right? Like if you, if you think guns are totally dangerous, that's fine. But you recognize that it's still not right in in, in any case for you to come onto my property and, and point guns of government at me or use force against me in any way to say, don't be dangerous to, to, to enforce safety on someone else. But in, in the bigger picture of, of someone else being a threat, here's what uh, I think will give you the perspective on this that, that might help you 
draw your own lines, if if you if you will, or if, if you choose to, which is that human life is incredible, incredibly fragile. True. If someone wants you dead, you're dead. We live. Human beings live at the pleasure of every other human being on the planet. You're alive right now because no one in your immediate vicinity wants you dead. We're not alive because we have limited our ability physically to kill each other because you know you can slit someone's throat you can choke them you can poison them i, I don't mean to get you know macabre with this no. but the, 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 to, to just embrace that fact to, to acknowledge how fragile human life is is to really live in the joy of that mutual respect that is the foundation of humanity essentially that we all are a communal species who fundamentally love each other. I mean, it is, it is lots of exceptions and, and sure, but when it comes down to it, you know, we are programmed to love and support each other. And if, if nothing else, if for no other reason than that we have been programmed and designed to be interdependent. Uh, so we don't want to kill each other. You know, even if you, you, you take all the, flowery philosophical loving analysis out of you take the word love out of it just scientifically biologically you know what do as human beings we have like the power to be so destructive to be so murderous if we want to be and yet murder is you know a relatively rare phenomenon I and mean, you, you look, look at compared to other species even other complex organisms uh that that, that do kill each other in different ways Humanity is not particularly special one way or another. If anything, I think what makes us special is that having become the dominant species through intelligence is that we are continuing to evolve with our intelligence to be more peaceful, to be more respectful, because we realize it is more cooperative and in our best interest that way. According to Professor Stephen Pinker, Stephen Pinker at Harvard, excuse me, who gave a great TED talk on the subject. We are living in the most peaceful times in human history. Mm -hmm. You are less likely today than ever before to be subject to violence at the hands of another human being. And so this is where it comes back to my story that, you know, one of the things we wanted to demonstrate was that gun control is a violent policy. And thanks to the raid on my home, I was able to demonstrate that beyond a shadow of a doubt that <laughs> when they say, you know, we want to take your guns away or that, you know, we're going to impose gun control in any way, it means that if you... Uh, you know, assert your right to defend yourself with firearms that government will come with even more guns and, and take them away and lock you in a cage. And that's literally what happened to me. Right. And I'm totally in agreement with the idea that people are manipulated to live in fear when in reality, not much really happens. Most lone gunmen can be traced back to a power network. Most major attacks are coordinated false flags. So there always seems to be, uh, you know, something systematic at its heart, even though we're told this is all random chaos and you have to be careful because there's just lone nuts out there. I mean, I definitely acknowledge that. But in an entire lifetime, you know, if you were to just to take a populated area like the mall, if you were to go there every day for 30 years, if 99.9% .9 of people you are with in that room are harmless and decide not to engage in you know, violence with you, it only takes that one person out of a hundred thousand to fire a weapon inappropriately, kill your loved ones. 
a lot of people are peaceful, but it only takes one person one time to really ruin someone's life. And are we going to just trust every individual to be responsible with a firearm? I mean, people are dumb. What if uh, some 16-year-old starts juggling guns in a public place? I mean, I know these are kind of extremes, but that does happen. And I just don't want to trust that kind of stupidity. I also don't want to have to go to a national monument and see armed guards with machine guns. That doesn't make me comfortable either. I don't know them just as much as I don't know an individual. But it does make me nervous. What do we do? Like, let's say, just to throw out an, uh, an actual question for you, what about weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons, bombs, sure. anthrax? Yeah. yeah, so here's – so, oh, man, it's so many juicy topics you just opened up with that because, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of want to um, – take this back to the, the, the problem of violence in society, sure. right? Like let's, let's, let's step back from the tools of violence and, and look at the, the bigger picture of violence for a second. And if, if we're talking about moving forward to a stateless society, that is one in which there is no institutionalized coercion uh, in, in the form of government, then how does this apply to the general problem of violence? Well, first of all, 90% or so, depends on how you want to count it, of all the violence in the world today is done in the name of government. So right away, you eliminate governments, you've eliminated 90% of the violence in society. Now, wow. you have to then take into account, is government preventing any violence? And the answer is not significantly. Because what, what, what do police do You know, after a violent crime? Usually they show up afterwards and write a report. If they make arrests, if they're fortunate enough, they put them through the government punishment system rather than a justice system, which makes it easy for people to get away with things. So th there may be some legitimate deterrent effect from government, but in this bigger picture, it's really insignificant because you look at the remaining 10% of the violence in the world that is not committed in the name of government, 90 plus percent of that is at least indirectly caused by government. With the drug war, especially as the big obvious one, I mean, there's so many examples of this, but the poverty as well that is created by government. When people are working for their corporate overlords through a system of taxation and oligopoly, well, yeah, of course, you're going to have people desperate in many uh, you know, unfortunate situations that lead them to commit crimes of incentive. So I think you get rid of government right away. You get rid of 99% of the violence in the world. Like, wow, if you really care about reducing violence, you know, we got to be on the same page with the big picture here and agree that we're going to work on the remaining interpersonal violence once we get the big problem of violence out of the way. Fair. But what about the vacuum that might control? How do we know we won't have situations where warlords and mafias and gangs start competing for local territory? Now, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, again, still not a reason to not get rid of government as soon as we reasonably can, because and, and by that, I mean, with a paradigm shift behind it, because the question is like, ask, you know, if, if a doctor says, look, you have cancer and I'm going to cut it out and you're going to be cancer free, you're not going to tell the doctor, well, I don't know, it might come back. Why don't you just leave the cancer there and let it do its thing, right? So in the sense that we have a paradigm shift 
behind the abolition of government means that we have to raise the standard of ethics in society much more broadly. We have to win a certain number of converts to thinking for themselves. I don't feel bad using that language because we're not converting anyone to a dogma. We're converting them to free thinking. And no free thinking person wants to use violence against another person or to, to govern another person or, or to support that violence in, in any way. So there has to be that critical mass of people in, in society who have gone through the awakening, if you will, that so many of us have uh, in terms of the nature of, of government and violence. And if that's the case, there is not going to be a power vacuum because in order for there to be a power vacuum, and again, because I, what I'm advocating is, is an evolutionary shift, not a revolutionary shift. So the power vacuum argument is legitimate if we were to have a revolution and you know a bunch of armed militias go in and have a big shootout with government and then there's no one there because the general public paradigm still supports government, the population will create a new government or rather uh, new individuals within the general population will take advantage of that and step up and say, oh, you want a ruler? I'll be your ruler, no problem. But if that were to happen after a paradigm shift, after we have this localization of government, not an overthrowing, not, an, not, not a sudden abolition, but localization, decentralization of power, then you'd have to have someone step up and be like, hey guys, remember when we had all those wars and the police state and taxes? Wasn't that awesome? Let's do that again. Because you can't just have a single warlord doing that. It doesn't work. Every system of governance requires a certain amount of public buy-in and general social support. If you don't have an enforcement class of cops and soldiers willing to do violence against peaceful people on behalf of the warlords or whatever the government people are calling themselves, then you don't have an actual viable institution of government. And, and that's the point, is to take away that viability by taking the support out from underneath it. Okay, so the structure as you want it to be would be underpinned by specific principles and an evolution of sorts. But how do you... Well, we, like... Like when you said, you know, the, the best system might be no system at all earlier, I, I, I kind of take issue with that language a little bit, because to me, the system is the natural law. It is the natural order of harmony and respect for individual rights. It, it, it's the, the, the imposition of a system. It's like it's like going to a, a national park, like going to Yosemite and looking at the beautiful environment and how everything is in harmony and, and there's a balance in nature and, and all the different species are interdependent and successful and going and saying, wow, this thing is terrible. There's no system here. We need to put a system on this. Fair. You know, Fair. it's like, no, there's there, there's a, a beautiful panoply already uh, of natural systems and, and organic means of interacting that are flourishing without any system being imposed by force from an external actor or central control mechanism. Okay, but how do you ensure that everybody evolves or adapts to these principles? I mean, what if someone just says, yeah, I see the natural balance, the natural order, and I want to disrupt that shit? I mean, how do you make sure everybody evolves once you dissolve outside security or the enforcement class, which I do agree with. It is an enforcement class, but I don't know. I think it does serve some benefit in keeping the chaos somewhat in check. I mean, I know that's kind of a, it's almost a double standard for a conspiracy theorist to say, but 
I worry that you can't force everyone to evolve. You're saying fight fire with fire. I'm saying no, fight fire with water. <laughs> and in that sense, what you're talking about is is not you know an illegitimate concern, but it's sort of like what, what we're talking about. Hey, nonviolence is always superior to violence. You know, stuff you learned in kindergarten, right? Like, let's just stop making these crazy exceptions called government so that some people can use violence against peaceful people, right? So I, I really believe that every human being is capable of understanding this. It's kind of like hygiene. You know, the, the first humans who invented, you know, brushing your teeth didn't have to force it on everybody. They just had to smile and say, hey, do you want to keep your teeth or not? And in, in the same sense, it's, uh, do you want to be a good person? Do you want to be an ethical person? Do you want to support other people acting ethically or unethically? Like, what is it that, that that's in your best interest? And I think of I think every human being is capable of understanding that eventually uh, it, it will be in you know while there are plenty of temptations of violence and force and, and temporary payoffs and things like that that ultimately in, the, in the, their own best interest over their lifetime being nonviolent is in their own best interest and and that's I, I believe that is fundamentally universal to being you know in an independent human consciousness that, that we are all capable of understanding that and, and will eventually. And even if we don't, you know, like to, to, to be able to move past this, you, you only need a critical mass of people who are willing to work to make the specific changes happen. And when you say to the general public, hey, could we do less violence here? Would you be okay with that? And we can use the electoral system and be like, okay, we're going to stop doing that violence. Okay, how about this violence? Can we stop doing this violence now? Would you be okay with that? And you go, yeah, hey, look how that would make our lives immediately better. So this is my concept of localization. We don't need to convince every single American that government is fundamentally unethical, just that it should be localized. Would you rather be governed by people in your community, in your state, or where you know at a scale where your voice and your vote have a chance of be, uh, of mattering, or would you rather have it uh, you know be governed by someone in a far off capital? And and I, I think that's a relatively easy pitch. Yeah. Well, I do agree with you there that local government would be better, but. When you're talking about government being the problem itself, that the system is the issue, I kind of think that that terminology might be off a little bit. Because when I see a lot of the major problems that people pin on government, I think they're actually caused by wealthy industrialists and corporate lobbyists and banking oligarchs using government as their liaison. You know, you got pharmaceutical companies pushing to make their vaccines mandatory. Uh, Rockefeller and Ford were the money behind the education department to dumb people down so they'd have no competition. Powerful textile lobbyists are the ones that made marijuana illegal. So is it government itself or is it really these multinational corporations and wealthy industrialists who are manipulating it because they have the power to do so? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked the question that way, but let me suggest a, a better understanding of, of how that relationship develops, right? So say you've got in, uh, you know the pharmaceutical industry and you have some companies that are using marijuana at a low profit margin, right? Because it's natural and it's it's open to competition and they can't patent THC, right? Like you can mm -hmm. patent a pharmaceutical. And one person gets into that industry who's an evil person. I mean, I don't want to say evil person. That's really not a necessary framework, right? There's no Nefarious. such thing. But sure. 
someone of ill intent, someone who's willing to do something unethical to get themselves ahead is in that. So say you've got you've got 10 different companies, 10 different CEOs in, in, in the pharmaceutical industry and government exists. And when government exists, that one nefarious person who wants to beat out his competition and is unafraid to use uh, unethical means to beat their competition, when government is there, that person goes, cool, all I have to do is bribe government and they'll use violence in order to support my business interests, right? If you don't have government there, that nefarious person has nothing to use, there is nothing there for them to, to do those unethical things with. And so the people who are going to compete and be successful are the ones who are using ethical means for their business practices. Well, let me it's only when you introduce, when, when you, you put the tool on the table that, that, you know, you're correct to say that they go hand in glove, but the problem is not the, uh, the, the concept of a company wanting to get ahead the problem is a company wanting to get ahead in a world with government that rewards corruption, that rewards violence, that w rewards bribery. Well, let me use your own example, because you say it's the government that rewards those criminal actions and the bribery and all that stuff. But I, I think it's the profit motive itself, because to use your own example of 10 pharmaceutical companies existing in a world where they want to make the most profit, even if you don't have government, you still have this incentive for one company who maybe isn't as doing as as well as the other ones to go and pay someone covertly to poison the other nine companies vaccines to taint them so that their companies have a massive scandal and thus the one company who wasn't doing as good is now at the top so even without a government i mean it's the profit motive itself that creates the incentive for criminal action because greed at least how i sure. see it no, and, and that's that's definitely a point that deserves to be addressed in all of this. Getting rid of government is not a guarantee that no one will do anything anything unethical. But having a government is a guarantee that people will do unethical things. So part of the problem with a society that supports government is that you've you've warped the profit motive incentive system. So you're, you're right that the profit motive exists, but in a, in a world where there's no government and, and therefore no market for violence in that sense, then you can only make money by serving people, by helping people. Or like you said, you know, sometimes there's that separate criminal, but I think you have better ways of holding them accountable, uh, you know, in, in a system with, which demands transparency as opposed to a government one, which creates secrecy and corruption. So, if you have a situation where that is, you know, that that, that profit motive is uh, only responsive to market forces, then that profit motive is properly harnessed to incentivize people to serve others. But when the market says, well, we like the free market, but we also like government to come in and regulate stuff and use violence against peaceful people and to, con to conduct a drug war and a war on terror and a war on crime and a war on poverty, and we want all of this violence, it means that Anybody who's stepping up in any business has to respond to that market for violence. I mean, even if you're going to cut someone's hair, you need a government license to do that. So you have to, if, if you want to, to not, uh, if you want to, because uh, the market says, well, if I'm going to get my hair cut at a barber shop, I want a, a barber who's licensed by government. Well, that that's the market saying, 
I not saying I, I want a safe or responsible or ethical barber. It's saying that I want to make sure my barber has paid off the violent extortion racket of government and contributed to that and gotten their permission to cut my hair. So in the same sense as you, you can turn that to the bigger scale when the, when the government's when, when the general population says, yes, I want an FDA to tell me what's safe to eat and to use violence to enforce its decisions. Well, it's it's it, you it's creating in and of itself a market for violence that takes what is a good thing the, the the you know in the sense that greed is good and i don't i you know I, I wouldn't use that language obviously but in the sense that the desire to create value for yourself the desire to create value for your other human beings the desire to create value for the world that's a good thing that's what moves humanity forward uh, you can you can twist it and say it's greed or say that greed is the twisted version of it i, I think it's only greed when it's it's i mean it's very subjective who cares about the meaning of the word, but greed has come to take on uh, a whole other connotation uh, of somehow not providing value to other people, and, and I think that's a that's a product of the broader status society and the broader market for violence, or even just demand for violence that uh, th that is part of the status paradigm. I mean, those are fair points. I guess I just fail to see government itself as the mechanism behind that violence. I kind of just see government as a neutral tool that can be used like a hammer to build great things or to bash someone's head in. And of course, the reason our government doesn't work is because it is co-opted by wealthy industrialists, bankers, and international corporations. It serves different masters who do use government to tilt the odds in their favor. But without it, I think they'd just be driven by greed to do it in other ways. Even poverty, like you mentioned, which is one of the biggest forms of violence. So many crimes wouldn't be committed without our poverty problem. And so many corporate crimes are the result of the dog-eat-dog, 10% growth every year, you might as well be bankrupt mindset. And I don't see how removing government alone responds to those incentives. Your, I mean, your guess is as good as mine, how we might make a workable system without all that. But I still think the bigger problem is that a certain kind of person is willing to trash the planet, kill or sabotage those in their way, and pay slave wages and completely exploit the rest of us to get a bigger pile of green paper. And that's the real issue, as far as I can tell. Well, I, I, I wouldn't dispute that you know you, you raise a lot of good problems, but there's so many things in there that that that, that seem like uh, logical fallacies behind or, or presumptions okay. behind what you're saying that I'd, I'd like to critically examine and unpack, if, if if we can here. Um, and I'm, I, I I wish I was taking notes during the last <laughs> like three minutes because it was like oh this and then this and then this I got because because I kind of got to go, go premise by premise here sure. and. I, I want to first step back in like in, in, in the much bigger picture here about this and, and try to uh, bring some context to this conversation itself, because I was asking similar questions to you in the course of my awakening, uh, for lack of a better term of describing it. And we see that there are a lot of people going through this awakening. And the, the, the bottom of the rabbit hole on violence and politics is that you realize nonviolent relationships are always more conducive to human happiness than violent relationships. So let me start by reframing capitalism a little bit because, you know, I could describe myself, it wouldn't be an unfair label to, to describe myself as an anarcho-capitalist. Right. And it comes from the, the belief in self-ownership that you as an individual human being own yourself as an independent consciousness. You have that inherent right to exercise your will with the only limitation being the rights of others, right? So 
if capitalism is described as ownership of the means of production, then it's not about factories. It's not about machines or supplies or tools or widgets. It's about individual human beings. The ultimate form of capitalism is you own yourself. And the ultimate measure of productivity is not widgets or dollars or corporate earnings, but human happiness. It's what you decide for yourself in the pursuit of your own goals. If you want to call that greediness or self-interest or whatever it is, you can put it in positive terms or negative terms. I see it as, you know, how you defining freedom is based on your relationships, right? Your relationships are free of force and coercion. And that's so important to understand that when we when we look at government as as a as an institution that everything it does is backed up by violence that, that by my definition of capitalism if capitalism is ownership of the means of production and that means you own yourself that when government exists at all you do not have capitalism because government is to govern, to control. When we talk about the institution of government, it is always control by force, control by violence. Even the good things that it does are backed up by the threat of force, if only in, well, if you don't pay your taxes, men with guns will come and lock you in a cage eventually. And so that being said, if, if government is violence, then that violence can always be shown to hold us back from our natural state of harmony and cooperation. Because in an individual relationship that is voluntary, this is why the philosophy is sometimes described as voluntarism. We believe that all human relationships should be free of violence and coercion. So that if that's the case, we know that any time, it, it's almost like a law of physics, you know, anytime you have a relationship that is involuntary, it means that someone's rights are being violated and someone's happiness is being compromised. And that's an affront to the natural order of uh, human harmony. Does that make sense? It does. And that was another question I had for you because you do talk about the fact that all tax is theft and ultimately violence. And I see the philosophical argument there, but can't it be considered a social agreement if we just had more control over where our tax dollars went? I mean, is there any paradigm in which a smaller community could come to you and say, okay, Adam, we're going to need to pull some money together to do some things that we want as a community. Are you willing to give X amount for projects A, B, and C? I mean, isn't there any scenario? Yeah, I'm, which... I'm all for that. No, that's right. great. I'm all for that. The only point at which I'm against that is when the mob comes to me and puts a gun to my head and says, you better pay your fair share because of the social contract. And I'm like, well, I never signed it. I just I'm trying to live in peace here on my own. I, I want my money to go to better projects or maybe I have a sick relative who needs medical care. I'm sorry, I can't help you pay for your roads. You know, I should have the right to choose what I do with with my resources in that situation rather than having a gun put to my head and have my my resources stolen. What if everybody chooses to pass the buck? What if everyone says, well, I don't have enough money. I, I want to see this stuff done. But if I pull out, you know, maybe all the other people will pay for it and everybody will have that mindset. What that means is that more important things will get done. So let's just let's look at the roads as an example, right? You know, without government, who would build the roads? And, and that's kind of a silly question. I mean, I just built a road here near my property. We know that we can come together and figure out the logistics of that, right? But let's say that 
uh, we have, let's say that our roads today, and personally, I, I think that at this point in history, if it wasn't for government, we'd have flying cars by now. But mm. uh, because the, the government has been subsidizing the oil and gas industry and the automotive industries for so long That's that they've true. stifled in a, in decades of innovation. But is it, that but is it government? But it, sorry, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. But is it government who stalled everything or is it literally oil companies who have owned the Using government? Using government. Right. Sure. I mean, you can describe it either way. So how do we get rid of if we get rid of government that doesn't get rid of the oil companies that are using the government? So how do we dismantle that power? It means that the good oil companies will rise to the top and the bad ones will be put out of business very quickly. It's it's but, how, but how, back how? to if I may get back sorry, to the concept yeah, of roads here. So and, and, and the, the it, to, to answer because you raise a specific concern yes. about pooling resources and how that happens without violence. And I, I really do believe that we will pool resources and distribute resources more effectively in the interest of human happiness when we take the guns out of the equation, the force and the coercion of government. So let, just to go back to the roads, let's let's say hypothetically that today's roads are really nice. I mean, they're government roads. They're terrible. Like mm -hmm. there's, they're dangerous. They're sloppy. There's bad means. But let's just say that today's roads you know, maybe compared to 100 years ago, today's roads are really nice. The government has spent billions of dollars on the roads in America, and we ended up with a, a reasonably serviceable transportation system. Let's say government wasn't there to tax us to create infrastructure for the oil and gas and, and automotive industries, and individual communities had to pool resources organically, or gas companies had to compete for our business to support them developing roads on their own. It might be, it might be, in your scenario, it might be correct that we are less able to pool resources to build roads. But what if instead of those resources going to build roads, they went to providing medical care for the needy? Maybe that was more important. Yeah. And what government do, did is, is create, well, we're a central planner and, and we need to have roads everywhere and it's going to be in everyone's best interest. And since you voted for it, we're going to steal from people to make these roads happen. Well. Maybe that's causing a, a whole host of unintended consequences that aren't even visible because, like you said, now we have all this poverty as a result of that wealth being stolen from the American people. Now we have those resources going to the whims of central planners who, in this case, we know are corrupt rather than going to meet the needs of the people. So you know, back to your community example. Hey, we want to we, we need to pull resources to build a library and we need one hundred dollars from every house in this town and we're going to go door to door and we're going to put a gun to everybody's head and we're going to collect a hundred dollars to build a library. Well, at some point you're going to find a guy who's got a hundred dollars left to his name who needs that for medical care to save his daughter's life. And you put a gun to his head and you took it and now he's broke and now his daughter's dead. You know, I mean, so, so which you see, there's there's a balance that is disturbed anytime you introduce violence into the equation and upset the natural distribution of resources in a nonviolent society that would at least to the best of our abilities go to meeting real human needs rather than the needs of corruption. That's well said. But is there a punishment or consequence that you think would be appropriate for people who do just want to leech off a system off of a community and not contribute? I mean, because you're giving people two choices. Either you can give a certain percentage of your income for this list of communal needs or you cannot. And there's zero consequence for not doing it because you're hedging your bet that everybody else is going to contribute. And it just seems like you're incentivizing people to be leeches from a system without contributing anything. I think the 
kind of the the dirty secret of volunteerism is that no one actually volunteers. <laughs> well, it's not volunteerism, it's voluntarism specifically. And you're making several incorrect assumptions in, in the proposition that you make there. Okay. So let me go back to the library example for a second. Hey, we're building a public library. It's going to be open to the public. If you want to donate, it's going to be open to the public. If you don't want to donate, it's still going to be open to you. So you're correct in that situation in saying that the generosity of the people that do chip in their $100 can be taken advantage of by the people who don't chip in. But in that case, it's voluntary. The people who are sort of in that scenario being taken advantage of are doing so because they want that poor person who can't afford to contribute to the library to, to still have access to books and knowledge and for society to be advanced by their having access to that that information. But let's say they, hey, we're, we're making a private library because we don't want those freeloaders. We want a private library where only the people who have contributed their $100 get to use the library. Well, then they have that choice and the people can decide whether that's what's in their best interest or what's not. So in some cases, do we, do we have freeloaders or not? Well, that's up to the people contributing. So we're giving that choice back to the community as opposed to today's system, which you talk about government encouraging freeloaders. I mean, hello. Well, right. <laughs> Woo! Whole other scale of people taking advantage of the system because government gives them that you know, sense of entitlement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't try to defend the current system by, by any measure, but I just am concerned about this system and some of what, what I perceive to be the assumptions made about human nature or how people would act, I guess the way to solve this, is there a real world model or example of a working libertarian community? Well, the question is more, does nonviolence, do we have any examples of nonviolence working better than violence? And, you know, I mean, there was a guy who got murdered somewhere yesterday and I don't think violence worked well for him. And there was somebody <laughs> I, whose hands I shook this morning and said, good morning, let's talk business. And it was a good relationship for both of us. So right there, you know, th that's all the evidence that you need, because what we're talking about is nonviolence versus violence, not uh, a system versus uh, a, a different system. It's let's eliminate the violence and coercion. So, so there are examples, uh, you know, all over the world throughout history where there have been periods of less violence. And how about that when you don't have war, when you don't have central control, when you, you don't have institutionalized violence? Yes, the general track record of human history is pretty clear. Less violence equals more happy people. And in terms of how we move forward in this and how we can agree, uh, regardless of whether you have full faith in this, is to make it a peaceful, orderly transition in a way that you can agree with entirely, which is localization. Mm -hmm. Government, at, even if you believe that government is necessary, and, and I might even, just to play devil's advocate against myself, you know, I might try to argue that as long as people believe in government, it is necessary. You know, we have to stop turning to violence to solve problems. And then, you know, when we, when we uh, train ourselves as, as a society to seek the nonviolent solutions before we seek the violent solutions, that would be the point at which government is, is truly obsolete. So how we move forward, again, localization, decentralization of power in the United States, very easy, eliminate the federal government, eliminate state government, well, excuse me, eliminate the federal government with an orderly transition to making the states the you know, highest form of government in the land, 
and you know not fundamentally change the paradigm just localize to that extent but then you're going to see people are going to be so much happier and more prosperous they're going to want to keep going with that process so once the states have become stable with the elimination of the federal government that might be several years that might be a couple decades then you can eliminate the state governments and get down to the counties and eventually down to the communities where systems of violence and central control will at least be very well custom tailored to the needs of that community. And in most places, they will be very quickly uh, made completely obsolete by nonviolent systems that, that will push the remaining government systems out of the way. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe part of my problem is the, the definition of violence. I mean, would you consider any requirement to live within a community to be violent? What, what do you mean? Any requirement to any live in a community? I mean, I, yeah. If we had, if we had a small community and said, okay, to live in this community, because we have developed a clean, nice system and it's got a good infrastructure and network. So we say in this community, if you live here, we take 5% of your wages and we put that towards public good. And if you don't like that, that's okay, but you cannot live here. You cannot use the community we built to make your wages because it's built on this premise. So if we say that Instead of locking them in a cage at gunpoint, instead we just move them out of the community. Is that still violence? I mean, is there any way to have requirements in a community and not equate it to violence? If you do it with property and do it properly, ethically, the system that you're describing is entirely viable. So let me see if I can tease out some scenarios in in how this might work that would kind of answer your question here. So uh, if you, l- let's say you're starting from scratch, right? You take 10 families and you go out in the middle of an unpopulated area and you put up a big fence around it. And you say that we are creating, uh, an organization here where we are all homesteading this land. We are all claiming this land and we are creating a voluntary collective of which we are all members that has rules of of a democratic system where majority rules and the institution owns this land. So no individual actually owns their home or their land within that system. Then it's entirely voluntary to participate. And then whatever is voted on, as long as people are free to leave, would be entirely ethical. And the collective as the thus legitimate owners of that property would be able to uh, exercise their ownership by expelling people from their property. And that would be a basis to uh, create the kind of system that you're describing. It's only a problem if you say, well, our community includes you and you're like, if I'm sitting here on my land right now in Juniper Wood Ranch, and you come and buy the properties around me and say, well, now, Adam, you're in my community. Uh, so we're going to claim that to, you know, we're going to impose our rules on you. And I'm going to say, no, no, this is this is my property. It's it's my rules on this. I'm not signing any agreement to be part of your collective. As long as you're not violating my property to do that, then then you're welcome to do that. I, I think in, in practicality, as we move forward to a stateless society, these things aren't going to be geographically based. The, I, I think that's a, a rather limiting hangover 
of, uh, you know, the pre-internet age and, and the status paradigm. So when you say like you want a community where we pool our resources in order to do X, Y, and Z, uh, I think it's going to be much more uh, virtual networks by which that happens rather than uh, arbitrary geographical areas. But if you want to do it in a geographical area, like to get back to your example, what do you do with New York City? Right. I mean, you get down, you dissolve the state of New York, the counties and everything, and you get down to New York City. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can untangle that knot of interwoven property claims. And I think what you're going to end up with is you could call it the, the government of the city of New York, but it would essentially be a it would have to become a private corporation that says, you know, we own the land. This corporation owns the land within this territory. I think that would be how you transition cities is that instead of trying to make a city fully private property based uh, at the individual level, it becomes uh, collectively owned. But instead of having the system of voting where anybody shows up and you have, you know, the, the, the government system, it's more like a, a shareholder system. You know, if, if you own a property on the island of Manhattan today, you know, and, and the corporation is, is now going to give you an extra voting right as the owner of that property. But now you're not the owner, you are the uh, sort of owner in they, 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 there'd have to be another legal structure for it. If you own an apartment building in Manhattan and Manhattan became or the New York became a not government, we wouldn't pretend to say that you own that property. We would say that you are, you know, you have uh, custodial ownership. You are the custodial owner. And that's the reality of owning property today under the status system that is so destructive. You know, I, I own, according to government, I own the 11 acres that I'm sitting on right now in Arizona, but I have to pay property taxes. Right. Yeah. You're well, always just if, renting. If, I'm paying, if that's the case, yeah, I'm a renter. Like, let's, let's just, I'm just saying, let's be honest about yeah. that. And if you have a system that's honest about that, then you can have a voluntary system that's going to meet human needs better than this, you know, illusion of ownership uh, under a statist system. Oh, yeah. I mean, believe me, that is a struggle I'm having right now because I'm at that point where I'm sick of throwing away two grand a month on rent and looking at trying to get into property ownership and then realizing, you know, you never really own that property. Right. So it is. uh, It is better. Well, hey, make the leap, dude. If I can do anything (laughs) to encourage you, make the leap. Help start this movement of people who are, you know, I mean, for me, this is like from the the Ayn Rand novel, uh, Atlas Shrugged. I'm not a Randian by any stretch. Don't misunderstand me. But, uh, you know, she introduced a lot of important ideas into you know, the, the human paradigm. And one of them is this idea of going galt that, you know, when you feel like you're suffering or in any way limited under a violent, oppressive system, just peacefully, nonviolently withdraw your support. Just say, no, I'm not. Yeah, you know, like, because, you know, I have a I have a pretty good bachelor's degree. I'm a reasonably smart dude. If I wanted to go play the corporate game and make money and you know, live that, you know, mainstream American lifestyle and have toys and pay a mortgage and all that. I could, but I would rather not, you know, live with the guilt once you understand that when you pay taxes, when you pay rent, when you, when you're productive for the system, you're contributing to the violence of the system. You know, I would rather do what I'm doing now and, and maybe compromise my overall material wealth in order to know that I'm not contributing to violence that's going to make the world a worse place for future generations. So for myself, you know, I bought a piece of land. It's not perfect. You know, I started building without a permit. I'm now working through the permitting process and negotiating a, a good deal in that, I think. You know, I'm I'm halfway to food independence here with chickens and turkeys and 
working on, uh, you know, building a greenhouse to have independence for fruits and vegetables as well. And it's, uh, you know, it's a process. It's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it, it's sort of, uh, I don't want to say a, well, it's, it, the struggle is more in psychologically breaking free. Like I'm, I'm actually sitting in an RV trailer right now. I live in a trailer. I've li- been living in a trailer for the last two years and I'm living in a trailer on my land while I build a house. And you know, that's, I'd, I'd rather, be living modestly this way and be living more ethically mm-hmm. than uh, than the alternative. Very eloquent, man. I appreciate that too. So just to put a, a finer point on this thing, you did wrap up a tour to gauge support for a 2020 presidential run and your campaign seems to be based on the question of what happens when a person runs for president only to dissolve the presidency itself. And that is provocative and interesting. Before we go, tell us about the tour and maybe how much support you actually did find out there for that kind of idea. Well, the tour was amazing. And compared to last year's tour, when we were just focusing on the book and we had a lot more time to organize, uh, we actually were still able to, on average, double our turnouts at every event. And that was huge. And people are really enthusiastic about this. The platform is simple. I, I say that I'm running for not president. And I mean that very seriously in the sense that the platform is to sign one executive order that immediately declares the federal government of no authority whatsoever and includes me resigning from the presidency to be custodian of the federal government and appoints department heads to each major department for the purpose of dismantling or transitioning that agency. So the only power that I would retain as custodian would be to replace the heads of departments as necessary if they get sick or die or uh, aren't following the the preordained plan of of disillusion. And some agencies are very easy. You know, what do you do with the IRS? Well, if we're feeling nice, you know, we decide to not cut people's hands off, send everybody home, sell the building, you know, sell the building. It's not that complicated. Um, similarly, like Department of Education does not run a single school, does not educate a single child. It's a federal bureaucracy that can simply go away. Uh, Department of Veterans Affairs. There's no reason it has to be eliminated as long as we separate it from funding through taxation. So what I would do with the VA is spin it off as a private charity where every single veteran has one share voting right in the VA and it's allowed to continue as long as it can sustain itself by donations, by, uh, you know, the existing use of the hospitals and physical properties that are controlled by the VA. Certain welfare agencies uh, can't be dissolved. They should be localized and there needs to be a a serious, cautious administrative process, if only of handling all the data from handing it to the federal agencies, to the state agencies that would take over those functions in each state. The Department of Defense, huge logistical hurdle. Uh, what do you do with the nuclear weapons? I think that's something that deserves a separate program to say, or I should say a, a separate uh, new department head whose uh, responsibility is to immediately dismantle, uh, excuse me, immediately disarm and as soon as safely possible dismantle the entire nuclear arsenal. So, you know, there's different things that, that uh, you know, have to be done with different agencies. But by and large, it's a pretty straightforward process to, you know, how, how we manage this to say, well, the federal government is no longer going to be the supreme 
or the highest form of government. Now it's going to be the states. Uh, if anything, what we're doing is saying, look, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. The hard way is we ignore the problems of the federal government. The hard way is that we bury our heads in the sand and pretend that this is just going to go away and wait for the collapse and then hope that government spares us in its violent death throes as it desperately clings to power. Hmm. As opposed to, look, let's face up to reality and acknowledge these problems. Let's disown the debt. I mean, the national debt is the greatest mark of unsustainability of the system. Let's get out of the dollar altogether. Let's transition to Bitcoin or cryptocurrency of some kind or, or state you know, or locally backed currencies rather than the, the federal reserve system ripoff. So, like, you know, there, there's so much else that, that goes along with this. But as complicated as the process might be, it's still a lot easier than a Roman Empire style collapse. It's, hmm. it's a lot easier than if the dollar collapses unexpectedly and, you know, we don't have something to fall back on. Uh, you know, so, so this campaign is not just about the message of the campaign itself but inspiring people to live more ethically and to go galt in the ways that they can withdraw their material support of government violence. Well said. Man, Adam, when it comes to the analysis of the current system, all its problems, its control schemes and abuses, we couldn't be more aligned. You know, I am just less confident in the whole self-governments model, but I do appreciate your position and your passion for it. Before we really go, remind the people where they can get your free book and get involved with what you're doing if uh, they like these things you're saying. Yeah, well, thanks again, Greg. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you and, and to your audience and to have such a thoughtful conversation about these things. And it's, it's just beautiful to be able to feel how so many compassionate people are applying their their intellects like you are to move humanity forward and it's it's really an honor to be a part of that so my website is thefreedomline.com thefreedomline.com if you go there you can plug into everything i'm doing all the social media and the book is free there you can get it in every digital format possible, including the audio book. So I hope you'll check that out. You can check out my YouTube channel. We recently hit 50 million views and 200,000 subscribers. So the market has spoken. I can be at least moderately entertaining as well on the internet. Check it out. And uh, if you want to get involved in the presidential campaign four years in advance, as we're building this organization now, go to the forums and sign up with your contact info and, and please join my email list as well there. So thank awesome. you very much, Greg. Yeah, you got it, man. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Keep fighting the good fight out there. You too. All right, guys. Adam Kokesh. Big thanks to him. Honestly, he was super nice and friendly. And I was a bit of an asshole this episode. I can say that. I interrupted and ranted. And I've let a lot of people get away with saying a lot of stuff on this show. But for some reason, this was the day I decided to dig my heels in. I've been thinking in a lot of respects I do agree with libertarians, but I just think that they have a big blind spot, which is all I was trying to get at. It speaks to that point we've talked about before about our tendency to want singular explanations. I think that's what positions like this are sometimes. But the Higher Side Chats is largely built around letting a guest make their case for their perspective without the bias of a host, right? At least to some extent. And obviously, I just couldn't let things go in this one. I don't know. <laughs> so I should and do apologize to Adam. He dealt with all that and remained a lot more cool than I was. In my defense, I didn't track him down to get him here to argue. Someone associated with him who was a fan of both the higher side and Adam's work asked about having him on. And I said, sure. 
because I do like a lot about what Adam says. So there is a slight distinction there, right? I mean, I'm not a total asshole. I don't know. But another reason I should apologize is because I've been holding on to this show for way too long. I'm pretty sure we recorded it in December, but we had Pizzagate pop up, which we dedicated some shows to. I wanted to get Austin on for the 2017 Astrological Assessment before we got too far into the year. And then because things were just so heavily political, I wanted to get back to weird stuff before putting out another episode that gets into worldviews and politics and that kind of stuff. Also, my primary recording failed, so I had to rely on my backup, which still sounds pretty good to the listeners, but it does put both voices on one track rather than separating them, which makes it a lot harder to edit and clean up. So that did play a role too, because I do tend to take the easy road a lot. But I feel particularly bad because Adam was dealing with some public drama at the time. That's something we got more into in the second hour. But he was very open and personal with a lot of stuff. And then to lag on the release like this, it's just rude. Shouldn't keep him hanging like that. So I fucked up. Of course, I still have my issues with that paradigm of self-governance and extreme libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism. But I could have handled it way better. If he ever wants to come back and do it again and talk more about the common ground that we share, like maybe we should have, I'd be down to do it. I do agree with the basic idea that things work themselves out and we don't need government to be a babysitter. And I even think self-governance is a great personal philosophy. I mean, I try to keep the system at arm's length as much as possible, but I don't know if you can scale that up for everyone. I don't want a Wild West. I don't want everyone to have to be armed to defend their own shit. I mean, that level of responsibility, I think, is very extreme. Adam's contention is that a big caveat to this system working is that it would have to coincide with a cultural evolution, but that's a huge caveat. I feel like that's saying, if everyone just acts right, self-governance will work. Well, any system will work if everyone acts within certain parameters, but they just don't. And there cannot be a society of absolute freedom because groups of people have to find compromises. Someone's right and freedom to host a drum circle at 3 a.m. will always conflict with someone else's right to have peace and quiet and a good night's sleep. I don't like cops or big government, but only because there is a threat of a ticket or confrontation with police or eviction do people generally abide by curfews. Take away all the recourse and some people will just be assholes. Public shaming isn't always going to be enough. Sometimes people get drunk and start acting stupid and they kind of need to have the threat of recourse, of consequences. I mean, listen to me. I guess I sound like I'm speaking at a Bilderberg conference, but I really just don't know that you can awaken the masses. People like us, listeners, we've always been outliers, right? Alternative thinkers, it's kind of in the definition. And I'm well aware of government's role in market manipulation and making monopolies, but again, It's a what came first, the chicken or the egg kind of thing. And I don't think unbridled free market shit works. People buy cigarettes and fast food when they know it's bad. The beast just gets bigger. I guess the questions you have to ask yourself revolve around if you think it's okay for there to be some requirements in a society. And if someone doesn't want to meet those requirements, how do you handle it? The perspective we talked about today considers all taxes to be 
theft under the threat of violence. Personally, I don't mind paying some taxes. I would like more control over where it goes. But how do you handle it if someone doesn't want to pay? Would it be reasonable in a certain town to say, if you don't want to pay, you can't live within these city limits because this city is badass because we all contribute and we make sure the streets are clean, don't have potholes. We got some badass landscaping here, all the kind of stuff that makes the nice towns nice. I mean, you know how they are. I mean, maybe you've ever dealt with a situation like a subdivision that has certain requirements to keep it nice, to keep the home values high. What if somebody in your neighborhood just wants to trash their lawn, have huge piles of garbage everywhere because they're just lazy? Is that their right? It brings down your property value. I mean, these are just little things that happen in a society. There has to be some kind of common ground. Another question would be, is a regulatory agency like the FDA fundamentally a bad thing? Or is ours just run by a corrupt revolving door of lobbyists rooted in a deceptive agenda and a false sense of security unleashed on an ignorant populace? Is zero regulation the answer? Or is something altruistic and fairly minimalist actually possible if we were to care? Though I do like localization of government. I wish we had localization of companies too. Nobody ever talks about getting rid of international corporations. Are they not an aspect to the globalist agenda? Are they not the ones that choke out small businesses and require these gross factory farm processes to stock their 50,000 stores worldwide? I don't know. I just take that Robert Anton Wilson approach that the map is not the territory and no map is going to cover it all. Meaning, what looks good on paper doesn't always apply to the real world and no ism is going to cover all situations and make everyone happy. But I don't want to just sit here and make a bunch of points that can't be responded to now that our guest is gone. That's not really fair to keep it going. But I don't think anything that I said would surprise someone who's listened for a long time whether you think I'm wrong or not. But again, with Adam, we do agree more than we disagree. So I was a bit of a dick today. Sorry, man. I hope people who do agree with Adam will let him know that they enjoyed hearing him on the higher side. I know there are a lot of anarcho-capitalist listeners. Hopefully you see what I've been trying to get at. If not, we can agree to disagree, but thanks for listening. In the Plus Show... I was even more of a dick, but also Adam shared some fairly intense personal stuff. We talked about lessons that he learned from his time in the military, industrial, and prison complexes, the difficult challenges Adam's been dealing with in the last year, the true difference between justice and punishment, and how we've been propagandized to confuse the two. A lot of solid stuff, and I really did enjoy his book too. Remember guys, it is free. So do get yourself a copy of Freedom, and I'll see you next time. I am going to get out of here. Your move, multinational monsters, globalist vampire squids, and out-of-date authoritarians. Your fucking move. They built a little empire out of some crazy garbage Called the blood of the exploited working class But they've overcome their shyness Now we're calling them your highness And the world screams Save me, THC They destroyed the bonds of friendship
bitch called the blood of the exploited working class.